0: In a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig putting in the hard yards ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Joco Hydrate sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy, supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Joco Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance, and not to mention taste bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code ZeroLimits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day: hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go.
1: Time for the Zero Limits podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high charging humans with hectic stories from around the world, we'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. <laughs>
0: Zero Limits listeners, here we are today back in the studio. Uh, I have a very special guest co-host today. He has co-hosted on multiple podcasts already, Troy Knight, my favourite Rassass.
2: (laughs) Thanks for inviting us, mate. It's uh, always good to be back here in Newcastle. It's my second home and obviously I enjoy being on the other end of the podcast rather than being interviewed myself.
0: Yeah, so obviously we had a few things organised and uh, one of those podcasts was chatting with our guest today, a DEA agent. Uh, drug Enforcement Administration agent.
2: Yes, uh, he worked for the fast teams that two commando, being Force Element Bravo in Afghanistan, partnered up with in the counter narcotics mission, basically taking drug labs and chemists off the face of the earth.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, that's it. <laughs> taking the Taliban off the market and off the face of the earth, which is always a good thing. Now we are chatting to uh, Joe Piazza today. He is. Uh, he spent quite an extensive uh, career within the drug enforcement administration with uh, you know a few operational deployments now during this time with deployment the reason why we wanted to get him on is because he worked with uh, two commando in Afghanistan now during one of these deployments in 2011 he was shot in the head uh, just about to enter uh, hilo and at that time uh, pkm round basically just entered his uh, it, it smashed him in the head yeah, it was a through and through, through so. and through. Yeah, two straight holes through, through the yeah. side of his temple, either side of the temple, uh, went straight through his frontal lobe of his brain, and uh, has left him blind. So, welcome to the show, Joe Piercante.
1: It's a pleasure to be on this podcast,
0: mate. It's I'm I'm really pumped for today's podcast. Obviously, we linked this up went up with with Troy, but um, just going, I guess, back at, uh, through the years, you worked alongside our two commander operators in Afghanistan. So I was excited to get you on, and uh, you know, get you to tell your story. You know, ultimately, during one of those operations, you were shot in the head by a PKM. Quite a, it, it's a crazy story. Yeah, it's
2: um, <clears throat> when I've heard it, and obviously I was the rotation in after. Uh, Joe got shot and when I heard the story and then how he survived is absolutely remarkable but um, yeah I suppose I won't rattle on too much about it I'd rather let Joe tell his story.
0: Yeah definitely definitely and so what we'll do mate we'll start off let's start off right from the start obviously you're a bodybuilder as well so I'm looking at Google right now and there's pictures (laughs) with you like you're an absolute man mountain of a human being so a, a big target in a way, But moving back, let's start off right from the start, mate. Run us through, you know, where you were born and uh, where you grew up and obviously <clears throat> what led to you joining, or you joined the police first of all things in, in Detroit.
1: Yes, definitely. I was uh, born and raised in the city of Detroit, Michigan. My father was a police officer. His uncle was a police officer and his cousin. And as we know, Detroit isn't one of the more safer cities in the United States, So I grew up playing football, American football, baseball, and hockey. And I was fortunate enough to go play football in a smaller school in southern Michigan. And when I went there, I originally wanted to be going to sports medicine and be an athletic trainer. But growing up and seeing the camaraderie and the team at atmosphere in law enforcement and how the guys and gals work together. During my first year at college, I decided to go the law enforcement route, even though my father never pushed that. But once he found out that I was interested in law enforcement, um, my father spent 20 years in Detroit on the police department and worked with many different units and task forces. And he worked um, with one task force that was made up with um, DEA agents. And um, my father thought that DEA suited me the best. And DEA is always known as the blue collar of federal law enforcement here in the States. And me being a rough and tumble and aggressive guy, my dad thought that would be the best fit for me. And, um, College, the guys called me Joe Rockhead for a couple different reasons. One, <laughs> because I had an extremely hard skull, which head, which may have helped me survive the PKM shot to the head. <laughs> also, I was kind of like um, an immovable object on the field, and I had that kind of never quit attitude. I was fairly decent player in college. I was two time all league and um defensive player of the week in our league numerous times i was team mvp and defensive mvp and we were a very successful team <clears throat> in college and um, just a quick story you know growing up in detroit you think you're a product of your you're a product of your environment so I thought everybody lived like I did so I remember my first week going to a um small town Adrian Michigan And I'm like, man, um, you guys leave your keys in the car and you don't lock it? I said, in Detroit, you have to put the car you don't want stolen in the garage, put the steering wheel lock on or the club, set the alarm. Of course, close the garage door, put a padlock on it, put a car you don't want stolen in front of it. And you come out in the morning and your car is still gone. (laughs) So it's like it just kind of blew me away. But, you know, different places, you know, people are used to different things. So. Uh, Coming out of college, I graduated in December of 1991. Problem was DEA was on a hiring freeze. So I went home back home to Detroit area and um, took a job as a bouncer in a bar and working as a boys home as a treatment specialist for troubled kids. And during that time, Detroit police opened up. I put my application in and got hired. I spent three years working in a high-risk patrol unit, and then my last year on the job in Detroit, I applied for and made our tactical team in Detroit. It was called a special response team, and made that. Anything I've ever did, I've always wanted to try to do it and be the best at whatever I did and try to make it to the highest level. And um, to date. My father was on the tactical team his last couple of years on the job and we are the only father-son combination that were on the tactical team while not at the same time we were both on the, the Detroit Police SRT. So during that time <clears throat> DEA lifted his hiring freeze, I applied and got hired. Went to the DEA Academy in Quantico, Virginia. At the time, we shared the academy with our FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yep. Since we have our own academy, but we still share the gym in the firing, shooting ranges and went through the academy. And when I got hired, you couldn't go back to where you were hired from. So there's a list and there's so many spots. And I put in for Phoenix, Arizona. Never been there before. I had some family that went there in the winter and My ex-wife had some family that went there also, and um, I ended up getting Phoenix, Arizona. Went there, worked on various different units. Uh, My first unit was a clandestine methamphetamine task force, which we did nothing but clan labs. uh, Methamphetamine labs in Detroit, I never saw methamphetamine one time. Yeah, Methamphetamine is not really an urban city African-American drug, per se. Saw plenty of crack cocaine, <coughs> cocaine, marijuana, and heroin, or they call it in the city, Heron. So I went back to the academy to go to Klan Lab School, and I stayed in the Klan Lab team for four years. Got to really learn how to be a narcotics investigator, doing a lot of search warrants, dealing with a lot of informants, and just really learning the nuts and bolts about narcotics investigations.
0: Yeah. Hey, Joe, just quickly, mate, can I just quickly go back to the Detroit police side of things? Sure. <clears throat> you were awarded two department citations for bravery. Yes. Can you elaborate on this?
1: Yes. They were for um, a couple um, barricaded gun um, persons where um, basically we went above and beyond and, um, Did something more than the, um, you know, normal police officer was expected to do. And in fact, one incident, we had a barricade. It was in the ninth precinct in Detroit, which was the precinct that I lived in and is now the worst precinct in the city. They had a um, ex-veteran that once in a while they would go and get their gun out and shoot up around the neighborhood. Yeah. So this person decided they wanted to do that today, that day. So the um, the local police officers went out, called it a barricade. We came out, brought our armored personnel vehicle, set up a inner perimeter around the house and started to negotiate with the person. It was um, daylight hours at this time. They weren't coming out. They started shooting rounds at our APC. But thank God, the APC is bulletproof and they just had a handgun. So my team, we were on a break like three houses down in between houses, just taking a break. And it had most of our equipment off. And we were with our, um, our suburban vehicle that we had, And all of a sudden, the person goes out the back door and starts to shoot at one of our officers in the backyard. Now our officer did not have a clear shot at them, so they could not take a shot. The person went back in the house and they also had a vehicle in their driveway. And our command said, whatever you do, do not let them get mobile in their vehicle. So sure as shit, a short time later, they go for the vehicle. We get word on the radio. They're going for the vehicle. My partner and I jump in the Suburban. I jump in the passenger side. He goes in the driver's side. We pull in behind the suspect's vehicle. And it's dark at this time. They begin to ram us. And they're not getting out. They had a sedan and we had a Suburban. They're not going to move our Suburban. So I then see a muzzle flash coming through the rear window of the suspect's car, and I'm like, oh shit, they're shooting at us. And I had a HK MP5 submachine gun that can go single shot or fully automatic. And my partner had the same weapon. So I bail out the passenger side, he goes out of the driver's side. I put my MP5 on full automatic, and I dump a magazine into the suspect's car. <laughs> my partner has his on single shot and fires five or six shots. And at the time, we were trained when you are um, you go dry and you're reloading, you take a need and make yourself a smaller target. So I said, "Cover me, I'm reloading." They're like, "Stop, stop, Joe! It's all done. It's all done." <laughs> Needless to say, the suspect didn't make it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, right. awesome. Bloody hell. <laughs> so, like, just, you know, obviously your entire career has just, you know, a hostile environment in a way.
1: Yeah. You know, Detroit, I knew what I was getting into in the police department because I lived in Detroit. Yeah. And um, you be learn to be the real police real fast, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, you get to deal with people and situations and everything. And I think it really helps you to go on to the next level in law enforcement, being in the state's federal law enforcement. And I'm not saying it's all the new agents, but you get some of these new agents that don't have any prior law enforcement experience. And they come in, you know, we're the big, bad feds, yada, yada, yada and you're just the lowly local police officers, bullshit. Yeah, We can't do our job without the state and local. Exactly. And some of those officers been on the job a lot of years, and they know what they're doing. So when I came on with DEA, I didn't have that attitude. And most of our groups are task force groups where we have state and local officers that we designate with federal agent status when we were work- they were working with us. So I got along with some of the um, the older local guys, and they helped really groom me to do my job.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how was your transition from uh, being a, a you know a state police officer moving into the you know the drug enforcement administration? How was that training? Especially, how was the training, and how long was it with the DEA? You
1: know, I believe the DEA academy was like four months or so. Yep. And it was um, in-house, the police academy, we got to come and go back home where the police academy was more paramilitary, where every day we had roll call, dress right dress, ready front, your shoes had to be spit shined, we had to iron military creases in these khaki uniforms we had, and you could not get them waxed or sewed in, and you got inspected and Heaven forbid if you had a double crease, or you had, is that a speckle of dust I see on you? And it, you know, it crack on some guys who look like no or gals looks like you shined your shoe with a chocolate bar. So they would just mess with you like that. But it was um it was a good academy. Um we only had a week of firearms, which I thought we should have more, but you know, it got the job done. And I was the big muscle guy and Detroit Police Academy, I graduated number one academically in my class. So I, I'm not just all brawn. I do have some brains there. <laughs>
2: You're not just a rockhead.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I do. I do have some sense. So that's one of the reasons I was able to go to that specialized unit, which was called tactical service section, right off the bat. They took, you know, the top five of us from our academy class. And you got to work with a bunch of older seasoned officers, which really knew the job. So as opposed to the DEA Academy, um, you didn't have that like roll call every morning. Your boots didn't have to be spit shine. I would say it was more of a gentleman's course, but you know, they, they got in your butt. We had to wear um, black BDUs and like combat boots and, I went during the summertime, so we got to wear like a polo shirt with DEA on there. Um, I would say it was much more challenging academically. A lot, a lot of firearms, which I liked. A lot of practical exercises, a lot of PT. And um, I was used to coming from Michigan where it's pretty flat and Quantico, it gets pretty hot there in Virginia it's a little hilly so it was um, a little more difficult running um it was very good academy i would say we had really awesome instruction you know to include you know the book stuff the firearms the practical activities and it really it trains you pretty well you know how to go out there and be an agent But as we know, whoever's been in law enforcement, whether it be uh, state and local or federal, you still have to have a lot of on-the-job training, per se.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And obviously, you had that tactical training from the Detroit police. So I guess it would have been uh, more of a reaffirmation for you to do that tactical training throughout the DEA and get you ready for your first – obviously, we spoke about your first uh, duty station to Phoenix, Arizona.
1: Yes, most most definitely. And we know over the years, tactics change and, you know, and get better. You know how we used to do things at first. We, you know, don't necessarily do them the same anymore. You know, you you live and learn. and, And after actions, you know, you definitely learn, you know, sometimes there's better ways and there's better weaponry. You know, at first, you know, in a SWAT team, we carried nine Miller MP5s and we know they don't go through a bulletproof vest. And in tactics and law enforcement, we started running into these suspects that had ballistic armor and high-powered assault rifles. So a lot of it more shifted to those type of carbine and AR platforms for SWAT and tactical operators.
0: Yeah, right. And as you said, uh, you know, being down in Phoenix with these, uh, you know, these drug traffickers, are you talking uh, Mexican cartel?
1: Yes, it was Mexican. Um, We had a lot of people um, in Arizona coming from the Sinaloa and Michoacan areas in Mexico.
0: And, and, like, how was that? Is it how, you know, obviously we only see what we see on the TV, obviously the movies and <laughs> TV shows like Narcos. we got to refer everything to movies <laughs> to, and TVs. Yeah. That's how, That's you know, that's how we see things, especially here in Australia. It, was it as bad as, it? you know, they portray it, uh, as in gunfights and, you know, deaths and
1: – you, you know, some parts. Phoenix is a pretty dangerous city. It's, it was kind of different for me, okay, we'll say – in Detroit like you and were in a lot of hands on like fist fights and wrestling matches you know you catch somebody in Detroit they're going to fight they know you can't shoot them and in Detroit pretty much the suspect had to have a gun out firing for you to shoot them now in Arizona it was kind of different where you couldn't really lay hands on people much but you can shoot people with the quickness there <laughs> so that was a little different for me and in Detroit and Michigan, there was a lot more professional courtesy yep. with other law enforcement. But in Arizona, I, I'm i sad to admit it, there, there wasn't as much. So, you know, to answer your question, th- there was some real dangerous stuff. But I'll tell you a little funny story. Like when I was with the guys and gals uh, getting ready for a search warrant in Phoenix, and one of the senior members of my group said, you know, Hey, be careful. This is a dangerous neighborhood. So I'm looking around and I'm like, what are you talking about? This is a good neighborhood to me. You haven't seen a dangerous neighborhood. Let me back take you to Detroit and you'll see a dangerous neighborhood.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I've been to Detroit and it's, uh, and I will, we're literally just speaking about it before. I've been to that, uh, that pawn shop. Well, we got to say it right because obviously when we say pawn shop, we call them pawn shops, not Ugh. pawn shop, like as an American would say. Uh, oh, you
1: went to the one that's on the show, Detroit Yeah, Farm, yeah. On 8 Mile Road?
0: And that was like even that was an experience because it's not in the best area and it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> an experience for me, especially oh, being an yeah, Afghan veteran.
1: A kind of funny story. Have if, if you, if you guys seen that movie 8 Mile by Eminem? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, so I was in Arizona when that movie first came out and they're like, man, eight mile must be a really bad area. I said, no, it's not. Eight mile borders the suburbs to the north. That's probably the best part of Detroit.
0: Oh, you're (laughs) on. Well, yeah, had me on on, on the edges. Now, mate, um, during your time in the DEA, obviously September 11, 2001 kicks off. That day changes, you know, mine, Troy's future. It obviously changed your future down the track. Mate, run us through that day and we, we all remember exactly where we were and I'm sure you do as well. And what what changed for you and did, did you foresee that the DEA was going to Afghanistan? Obviously, ultimately you did.
1: Yeah, I remember that morning I was getting ready to go to the gym in Arizona and was watching the news. I worked out before work because we never know how long we were going to work. So I was watching on TV when the first plane hit the towers. They said a small commuter plane just hit the towers. So, of course, I was on the edge of my seat. You know, what the hell's going on? And then the second plane hit and they're like, that was not a small plane. Like, oh, shit. You know, so everybody kind of started to panic. And then you had the plane hit the Pentagon and we had, You know, Flight 93 that was taken down, you know, kind take, of taken back by the passengers. So we didn't know what the hell was going on and what the hell they were going to hit ne- next. So it was kind of like all hands on deck. You know, we report to the office, you know, we got to, you know, do more security checks. We didn't know what the hell was going on. I never envisioned DEA being in Afghanistan in a war zone, but... Shortly after our military went over there, you know, we had some, you know, basic intel. You know, Qaeda was running their training camps with Osama bin Laden and things of that nature. <clears throat> but as soon as the military went over there, they soon found out that the Taliban and these insurgent groups were getting their funding for their legal terror activities by the production and sale of heroin. So as we know, that's not the military subject matter expert. You know, that's not what their subject matter experts on and who is in the States, the DEA. So they called on the DEA for help. And at the time, we didn't have a unit that could really go do that kind of stuff. Back in the day, we had a thing called Operation Snowcap, where we went over to source countries like Colombia and Bolivia and such, and we would go with a um, local partner force and would raid cocaine labs in the jungles. So, what DEA did, they talked to some of those gentlemen who were in Operation Snowcap and were decided to start the FAST team, which stands for Foreign Deployed Advisory and Support Team. when I talk, one of the first questions of I'm not talking to other narcotics law enforcement officers, why the hell was DEA in Afghanistan? You know, as we tell them that Afghanistan is the largest producer of heroin in the world and it funds their terror ac- activities, it's called a narco-terrorism nex- nexus as what you, what you may solve there also.
2: Yeah, I think what a lot of Australians don't understand, especially with American foreign policy, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe, but if drugs from a country are getting used in America, then obviously the DA and other forces will make up a joint task force to obviously take down the manufacturing of that drug lab in another
0: country. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so you said Team was established in 2000, what year was that? Sorry, 2009?
1: It was like, you know, when it finally broke, it was like three or four years after 9-11.
0: Okay, yep. So it was established quite early post-Afghanistan, 9-11, sorry. Up until 2009, that's when you got into the FAST teams. What were you doing during that whole period, just still in Arizona doing?
1: Still in Arizona. I was in several different units. I was on a west side task force, which was made up of state and local officers from west side um, police agencies and It's kind of funny. Like I said, I've always wanted to try to go to the best at whatever agency or sport or whatever I was playing. So I had a mate that was on the F.A.S.T. team that came from Phoenix that I had worked with in Phoenix. And we really didn't know what was going on with the F.A.S.T. team in Phoenix, even though the special agent in charge of Phoenix, they would get reports of what the F.A.S.T. team was doing. And I was looking to do something different. And I called my buddy and he I'm like, his name was Tom. And I'm like, Tom, what are you guys doing? Are you guys just training or or what the hell are you doing? He goes, no, Joe, we're working with the best military units in the world. And we're doing stuff that you would only see like DEA was doing in movies. And that really excited me. But the problem was. And the FAST team would have tryouts every year. You had to put in and you had to be on the job for a while because they wanted you to be an investigator. And you put your name in the in the hat to go and you were possibly selected. I was 39 years old. I was not a young man at this time. And um, I was still always physically fit. I knew I wouldn't quit anything, as you know. When we get older, we just don't heal as quick as we did. I was worried about getting hurt, and I heard the selection was very, very tough. Now, my buddy couldn't tell me exactly what it entailed, but what it was, it was made up of various other U.S. Special Forces selections and compiled together to see if you had to make up to be a FAST agent is when the team was first started, they didn't have tryouts. And what was happening is guys or gals may have been able to do it in the past, but they went over there and and you're working with, you know, these high speed special ops units and they weren't able to keep up. So they instituted the selection. So I applied for fast and, um, went to the FAST selection in February of 2009. So there were suddenly like 36 of us that um, were on that initial teletype for the selection. So we report back to Quantico, Virginia, and the first part of the selection is run by current FAST team members. And the guys, kind of call it, well, they call it like a hell week. It's not as nearly tough as a Navy seal hell week, but it's, it's a bitch. Yeah. You know, you're tested with these different physical fitness activities and shooting and thinking on your feet and all these type of things. And you have tier one events, which are pass fail. If you fail one tier one event, you're thrown out and you have different tier two events, which, you fail one, you were kind of put on like double secret probation. And, you know, you could get um, you could fail out, you know, by failing those. And what we also did, we use this service, this like um, psych service that the U.S. special ops use. And before you go to selection, you have to take this test online. It's like an it's an IQ test and also like a kind of um mental test to kind of see what your character is. And this group was pretty damn good. They can pretty much to a high percentage determine if somebody was going to make it through selection, you know, you know bearing injury and stuff, which is unavoidable, but um, it was, it was pretty good. Yeah. And also during selection, we had called Piri which which um, halfway through, You have to list the top three in your class and the bottom three and put reasons why. And at the end, you have to do the same. Because what had happened early on, they weren't doing these Peary Vals. So, you know, you guys know, living in confined space overseas with people (laughs) for long periods of time, you don't want to have an asshole (laughs) because it can make everybody's life miserable. So you kind of did the Peary Vals, but that happened. And you get guys that can fly through all you know, the skills and everything. And some maybe former military, but if you're an asshole, you're still an asshole and we don't want you on the team.
2: Yeah. We call them your mate" here in Australia. And it was the best okay. way. To, it was the best way to get rid of, you know, what we call SCs, which is a shit. So I won't say the word cause I know yes. a lot of Americans don't like that, so, but that's the best way just to get rid of those lazy shit individuals.
1: Yes. M- most, most definitely. So once you're through that first phase, um, you make it through that initial hell week, and then you have to sit on like a, an oral board with um, a supervisor and, and current FAST team members and they ask you a series of questions. And just because you make it through physically that first phase, you still can be denied, denied to go into the second phase, which is a training phase. Mm. So that's run by an ODA Green Bray team or a US Navy SEAL team. Yeah,
0: right. I was so just about, about to ask that it, oh, sorry, I was just about to ask yeah. that if it was uh if your training was influenced by obviously SEALs or Delta and or Green Berets and obviously it is uh.
1: Yes, you know, definitely. Um our close quarter battle system is what the um the Tier 1 unit of Tier 1 of the of the SEALs use. It's called combat clearing, you know, so you know, we were influenced a lot by them, a lot by the ODA Green Berets. So a kind of funny story about that. So I grew up in Detroit. I was had a swimming pool in my backyard and we had a cottage on a lake here in Michigan. And I did water sports and everything. You know, I could swim. But in fast training, we had to do a lot of distance swimming and training water for long periods of time. And I found out that muscle doesn't float. (laughs) <laughs> so you really have to relax in the pool yeah um, but the worst thing you want to do is to start to hyperventilate and then once you lose your, your oxygen you're done so i made it through um i kind of struggled and there was another guy um our team which um i believe some of you guys know is joe mccrana
2: yeah oh no joe
1: he was um former army airborne really in shape he was probably our top physical fitness guy and our selection. But Joe had a little difficulty in the pool too. So we got to go home after um, our first phase, and I was a mess. I pretty much, our first uh, healthy phase, I had a blister on every part of my foot. I had lost every toenail on both feet. Thank God they grew back. And I remember. My girlfriend at the time picking me up from the airport. She's like, what the fuck happened to you? <laughs> and I had to go to the emergency room the next morning, because my foot was infected. And I'm trying to explain to the doctors what happened. And they're like, OK, um, why don't you tell us the truth now? Oh, yeah. Oh <laughs> So when I find out the Navy SEALs are doing our second phase of training, I called Joe. I said, did you hear who is doing our next training? But he goes, yeah. I'm like, oh, fuck. So we show up to Virginia and we're standing outside the Navy Lodge, Old Dark 30 for PT, um, the first morning. And we went straight to the ocean, in and out of the water, roll around the sand, do sugar cookies. We're like, what the fuck? And somebody from our command told them to treat us like we were in buds and we're like time out we were told this is the training phase and here we're getting hazed again they're like oh shit. so the seals you know being the seals and i really have a lot of respect for them we went on a distance run they put their best runner out if we did a crossfit more type workout they put their best crossfitter out there and everything um you know but they, they later backed off a little bit so we got to learn all the high-speed military you know, tactics and how to use all the whiz-bang military weaponry, you know, belt-fed machine guns, rocket launchers, grenades, plastic explosives. And even Detroit being as bad as it is, agents in Detroit couldn't even use those weapons.
2: Now, can I just ask, Joe, at this time, were you bodybuilding? Like, how did you run? Yeah. Like, for, for our listeners, Joe's also a professional bodybuilder that competes in the I, IFBB, which is the uh, leading organization, or like the ones that, you know, if you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dorian Yates and places like that, like Joe actually competes at that level. So how, were you bodybuilding at that stage? And how did you find the swimming and running being the size you are?
1: Well, I actually did after college, I did my first bodybuilding competition in 1992.
0: Oh, shit. So you're so massive.
1: I've always <laughs> been a bit. I've been pretty much over 220 pounds since I've been 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So um I slimmed down a little bit. I was probably in Phoenix in the 230s. I think when I went to selection, I was about 215. <laughs> so that was fairly light for me. So I had I had good endurance. And so that was pared down for me in size wise. But you know, I, I ran, you know, I'm more of a sprinter to begin with. It was always really fast. I knew in football I wasn't gonna be the tallest because on my tiptoes I'm five foot nine. And um, I knew I'd better be fast and strong. So, running so back it, in football? It, um, I played, well, in high school, I played running back and inside linebacker. And then in college, I played inside linebacker exclusively.
0: Yeah, right. Far out. Yeah, so, sorry, I was just taking I yeah, was just like, I was just thinking about it because obviously I've seen that YouTube video of Ronnie Coleman when he's <laughs> when he's part time police officer, just like massive. How do they get body armor around you? <laughs>
1: Well, in Detroit, I was only as heavy as like two thirty or so, and it's still know, a big boy, a larger vest. But it was, uh, <laughs> they could, you know, they could do it, you know, and and I always was an athlete, so I was very, I would say, agile at my weight. Yeah, I was used yeah, to carrying that weight, but like we said, as we know, that the muscle doesn't lead to swimming well.
0: <laughs> so. You uh, moved out to California, Camp Billy, and complete uh, land land warfare training with uh, SEAL Team 5.
1: What notification? We went to, um, this was spring of 2010. Yep. We went to Nyland, California, Camp Billy-Macon. That's where the SEALs do their training after Bud's. So it was kind of interesting. That's the first time an outside unit has actually went there. And when we show up, um, we are going to be training with SEAL Team 5. They're getting ready for their – they're doing their pre-deployment training. They were doing the land warfare piece, which is the toughest part of their um, pre-deployment training. So the command staff knew that we were coming, but the the basic SEALs did not know. And they're like, who the fuck are these guys? So they actually broke us up into – um, twosies and threesies and put us with different seal fire teams and we did everything that they did with the land warfare and then you know that was to include to do at night with nods and lasers and it was tough man he was going day and night it was like for three weeks they did beat the balls off of us <laughs> and he was tough and, but you really got to really learn how to, you know, get comfortable with your equipment <clears throat> and everything like that. And in fact, we had this one event, it was like the stress shoot and we were paired up with other seals and I was paired up with the, um, the senior chief on the team, the unit I was attached to. And you had to like in full kit, you had to do it day and night. You had to do this little run where your buddy carried your partner and then you have to do kettlebells and swings and pushups and then load your rifle and then shoot this course. Then you have to do the same thing at night. And lo and behold, who won the whole damn thing? Me and the, the senior chief that I was partnered up with. <laughs> and they're like, you know, damn, you guys can shoot. I said, yeah, most of us have been shooting rifles and guns for a long ass time. So we actually got, um, won a case of Krona beer, so it was pretty cool. So we got, some, you know, we got some street cred with the guys.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> so at this stage, did you have uh, an inkling that you were going to uh, Afghanistan?
1: Oh, oh yes. Oh um, yeah, yep. Yeah. That's one thing they did going through selection. They really let you. It was fast. Team was a, a totally volunteer thing, and they did a really good job of letting you know what you were getting yourself into. And they said, you know, hey, if this is not for you, we understand this is not what you want to be doing. It doesn't mean that you're a bad agent or anything like that. It's not for everybody, you know, and don't take a spot for somebody else that, um, you know, really wants it. And that's one of the reasons, you know, going through this election when I was, you know, wanting to quit and give up. Hey, you know, there was a big prize at the end, you know. I get to go to Afghanistan, you know, and after 9-11, you know, I was working for the federal government, but, you know, as an American, I wanted to try to do my part to, if I could, to get some revenge for what happened to our country on 9-11, you know, and people ask me Joe, why'd you volunteer? And why'd you do this? And I tell them, you know, freedom isn't free, And somebody's got to do it. It can't be always somebody else. It can't be always somebody else's husband, wife, brother, sister, father, mother. Somebody has to go. And we get the freedoms in our country by people who paid the ultimate sacrifice or come back maimed and really fucked up. So when fast happened, that was my opportunity. Yeah. You know, to do this you know, for my country. Yeah, fuck yeah. 6 p.m.
0: Now, Notification. Uh, so 2010, you get your first deployment to Afghanistan, 120 days, worked with U.S. and coalition uh, special operations units, and obviously the Afghan uh, partner force Yeah, targeting uh, obviously the, the, the drugs, the narco-terrorism.
1: Yes. Um At that particular time, we were stationed at Kandahar Airfield CAF, and we were- um, You know, mostly it operated in the Kandahar province over there. And a lot of people don't know that area is the birthplace of the Taliban. But it's also an area where they really grow the poppy for heroin and produce it. And a like I said, a big insurgent area of, you know, terror. And so when we went over there, uh, my partner... And I, Travis, we got assigned to a ODA Green Beret team. It was a group um, out of first group. And we were going to be operating with them. And uh, other teammates were going to be operating with other units, such Rangers and things like that. So we went over to this uh, camp that was outside of Canada Airfield. And my partner and I actually lived with the Green Berets. And we were doing what they call movement to contact. Basically, we would go with the green brace. And these areas, of course, would be areas where they were manufacturing heroin. That's how we got to go. And we would go pick a fight and see what the enemy can do. We would stay there 24 to 48 hours. And a lot of time, a conventional unit would go in after. And then we would see, you know, what drugs were there and stuff. And we would handle that part. So people don't know also that Afghanistan's the biggest producer of heroin in the world, but it's illegal and people get a lot of time for it over there. And we can pull people off the battlefield a lot longer than the regular military can pull people off the battlefield for questioning. Hmm. So we really plus them up. So it was crazy. Now, that area we were operating had a lot of implanted IEDs, a lot. And as you you fellas know, in a stand-up fight, they really can't hang with us. They're, one of their big weapons is the IED. Yeah. And there was guys getting blown up all the time. And I thought it, I would lose a leg or two. I never thought I would get shot in the head by one of these booger eaters. <laughs> so we were rocking through that tour. And we were um, we we're doing we were doing a pretty good job but we were getting a lot of firefights and, and as you fellas know that, Hey, this is how they make their money. Yeah. And these labs are behind enemy lines. So they're going to fight like hell to hold on to these damn things. So, you know, I remember there's times I was over there and bullets are flying over my head. And as you, you folks, you guys know that bullets make noise when they get close to you. (laughs) And I'm like, Joe, what the fuck you doing over here? You volunteered for this shit. But you know, people ask me, were you scared? Hell yeah, I was scared, but you still got to do your job. Yeah. And I kind of explain it as like, you're at the amusement park or at the fair and you get on the biggest, baddest, meanest roller coaster and you're scared to death. But then when you get off, it's like, okay, when are we going to do it again? So I was always a bigger fellow. So when I got the fast, you're like, you're going to carry the belt fed machine gun. I said, okay, great. I said, the thing is still heavy. And I'm old. Yeah. But in a firefight, you know, that thing, you know, you can tear some, you can tear some stuff up with that, with that 7.62 machine gun. <laughs> yes. So we're rocking through that tur. And at the end we got, we're going to two more ops and we get a green braid team from third group out of Fort Bragg that comes in and um, they come in and we start working with them. So, we are planning for this op in this area called Hazi Madad. And in this area, they have a Taliban hospital. And also they had a couple of Dishka a Russian anti-aircraft guns. And every time the coalition forces fly over, they shoot at them with these Dishkas, yada, yada, yada. So we're doing um, our pre-mission brief the day before. And, you know, we're briefing, you know, we're going to we're going to go in there with three four CH-47 Chinook helicopters. We're going to land in this area they had. We're growing a lot of marijuana. And we're going to, you know, see what the marijuana situation is on the ground and try to find these discos. And uh, U.S. Army Rangers went in there a couple days before and they took some casualties. So they're telling us in this brief that. Um, there's a high probability that one of your helicopters is going to be shot down at in infill. I'm like, Oh shit. You know, so you're sitting there, you know, before the op, back at your room, you're like, hope to God that's not my helicopter. I as you fellas know, you're kind of like, um, flying coffin up there at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're nervous and, uh, you know, hope it's not me. So this was, um, mid August at the time. And so we usually like to go at at night, at dark, to use our advantage with our night vision and lasers, because the enemy usually doesn't have that. So we insert, land, get a foothold, and thank God we didn't get fired at by the dish guns. And we get a foothold, and we're going to wait to morning light to do a more thorough search. And there was a combat outpost in the area, which one of our airborne units was at, so we start moving, you know, after first light, they do their morning prayer and they usually try to probe us and hit us a little bit. So we had a couple little minor firefights, nothing major. And and as you folks know, they have these thing called ICOM radios over there, like portable handheld radios. And we can intercept the damn thing. Mm. So and they usually talk shit over these things. Like <laughs> we would find the ID and blow it up. And they're like, oh, you know, we hear them dying. We are killing them. No, we found your freaking ID and we blew it up. So they're talking shit that, hey, we got to find a good place to set up the PKM machine guns. We're like, yeah, whatever. F you, you know. So we're rolling through and we get in these skirmishes and we lose our close air support that we had because another unit got in a tick, troops in combat contact. So we also had a predator flying over us, you know, giving us feeds. But I don't know how this happened, but I guess it's colder the higher you get, and the wings iced over, and they had to land. And since we had been in um, some gunfights, Air didn't want to come pick us up because they didn't want to come in the hot LZ. So it was decided we were going to try to make it to this combat outpost which was about two clicks away at this time. So we stopped at this little village area to get set up to make our final push. And I'll drink some water, eat some food, the things, and just had like an eerie feeling. It's just like hairs in the back of my neck stood up. It's like something's not right here. The people were acting really weird. So we get in single file with our Afghans and um, the Green Berets and their partner for us. And we're making our trek to this combat outpost. And one of our guys, he says, I think I see somebody in the hut up there. So one of the Green Berets glass it with his optic and it uh, looks good. Let's keep going. And as you folks know, you know, it's biblical times how they live over there. Yeah, He's exactly. Mud, mud wall, but hey, they do a good job of stopping a freaking bullet, let me say. <laughs> and I had this half pony wall to my right of me. And all hell breaks loose. They sure as hell were trying to find a place to set up the uh, near ambush. Uh, ambush. Um, they kicked it off with PKMs. Um, we get four people hit right off the bat. And then one of the things that saves me, I have this pony wall by me. So at one point in the gunfight, I have rounds coming over my head and to the side of me. One of the Green Brays, who was an acting team sergeant, cr- calls on the radio. He's got a femoral bleed. So we had one of our guys and our team go out there, and he was packing his own wound, and our guy dragged him to safety and put a tourniquet on and the source, the such. So I got my Mark 43 M60 Echo 4 belt-fed machine gun, and I usually carry a one full box on the weapon and have four boxes on my kit of 100 rounds. So I start rocking and rolling with the machine gun, trying to see puffs. It's during the day, trying to see puffs of smoke or areas where I think enemy may be. But as we know, it's not like the movies where your ammo lasts for 10 minutes. It's <laughs> it, 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 a, a machine gun, 100 rounds can go real quick. Yeah. So, you know, we were actually we we're talking a near ambush hand grenade throwing range. There actually was hand grenades being thrown back and forth. Yeah, right. So I'm rocking, um, rocking and rocking and rolling, you know, firing burst with my machine gun. And I'm like, shit. Uh, I can't run out of ammo. You know, what do we start getting overrun? So I had one of our Afghans that were working with us that spoke good English, and the Green Brays worked with a unit called the Commandos, and they carried a machine gun similar to mine, which carried the same type of ammo. So I had the Afghan hey, and they had A-gunners for them. They had a shit ton of ammo. So I said, go get me some more ammo for my machine gun. He comes back a short time later with a little link of belt. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with this? So I just linked it <laughs> on one of my belts and kept firing to conserve ammo. So, and I tell you what, man, um, we finally got some close air support, quelled things down. And I tell you, those medivac pilots came in. And they had RPGs going to the shot at to the left and right. They landed and got their most critically wounded people out of there. So we still got to get to this combat outpost, which is still about a click away. So we did what we called our Mogadishu Mile. So we're running and shooting, trying to get to this combat outpost. You know, usually we're very cognizant of IEDs, but hell, that went out to the wind at this point. We need to get the hell out of here. Yeah. So I remember running and shooting up. You see me, I'm down. We get to this open field and, you know, trying to make it there. Then the airborne unit comes out with their gun trucks and um, they're not shooting. We're like fire, fucking give us some cover fire, fire. So they start firing and we end up making to the combat outpost there. And we're all spread out like a yard sale. And um, some of the soldiers there, man, did you hear that shit out there? Who the hell were those guys out there? We said, That was us. They're like, holy shit. And thank God everybody survived and everybody fully recovered um, after that. And that was our last mission of 2010. And we got to go home. I think that year we did about 10 ops. Yeah. And there was only two times that I did not have to fire my weapon.
0: Holy shit. So that whole deployment was just kinetic, just kinetic, kinetic, kinetic. And then, yeah. uh, you, so you get back to the U S and how, how are you like, how, like in your, I guess your mental state as well, where you're just like, fuck yeah, America.
1: I, I was like, so <laughs> um, glad to get home. I yeah. had a girl back in, um, uh, Virginia, Virginia, there where we were based out, we were based out of Quantico, Virginia at her Academy there. And, you know, I was just so relieved to get, get out of there with my life. But honestly, I thought I was going to die that day. Yeah. It was, it was that bad. You know, but you get to go home and decompress and spend time with your family. And they have our psychiatrist that you talk to afterwards, make sure you're all right. Make sure, you know, you don't have any additional issues and things of that nature. So you get to go home and rest and then refit uh, for your next deployment. Like you said earlier, each deployment was approximately 120 days, mm-hmm. give or take. And we always had a fast team in country at the time.
0: Yeah. So obviously your next deployment is uh, in Honduras. Yes. Yeah. And what was this uh, working with a joint task force, Bravo going after air tracks of interest loaded, uh, loaded with uh, cocaine?
1: Yeah. Cocaine coming from source countries that yep. would land in uh, Honduras and they would vector us in and we work with the Honduran partner force and, we would launch in a CH-47 Chinook helicopter. They would vector us into the bird, and when it landed, we would try to take it down. Now, um, we had a team that was over there before us, because we were doing this training in Florida, the special special ops training, and they got in a pretty good firefight. Yep. They see some pretty good stuff, but they got one of the Honduras wounded. Our guy saved them and Joint Task Force Bravo was like, whoa, whoa, timeout, timeout. Um, we're we're here not to be in war, and we're just a minor transportation piece, and we really don't want to do this. We're like, okay, great. So we show up. We, you know, we're full of piss and vinegar and ready to go. So you know, they kept making every excuse, and well, oh, we didn't need to do more training, or or the weather's not right, and yada yada yada. So we actually got our DEA aircrafts came when we had lots lot smaller helicopters and we could only fit a limited number of people in there. Not enough to really take one down of one of these planes. So we actually got the launch on two ops. We got on the birds, the birds and they land, which they call runways. It's no runway like I ever saw. And they do it at night without night vision. And it's like an old, old road or like a clearing and they really don't care if the planes can take off again. They just want to get the drugs on the ground and offloaded and then trek to Mexico, either by land or water. So, but the bad thing was once we got on them and we started going um, black on fuel. So we had to go back to base. Mm. So, you know, you got to, you know, we got all excited. Hey, we're going to do some, we knew we really couldn't land and take them on, but Hey, Maybe we go and they fire at us. Maybe we can take out the plane and you know do we do, do whatever we can do. Maybe do a little damage to them. So one of the problems was this mission was really broadcasted, and they knew we were there in the area we were staying at. The um, local drug lord he took off and left and went out of country. So one of his lieutenants that was under him. Decided. Okay, we're going to get DEA to go away. We're going to kill a couple two D. We're going to kill a couple DEA agents. So in the mornings, the place we were staying at, there was another place that had like this little airport area, and we would go on the morning. We would run and do some PT and stuff like that. So they decided they were going to kill the big guy, who was me, <laughs> and the guy with the funny shorts was this guy Dave on our team, wore this goofy shorts yeah. And thank God. One of our partner forces, we members we were working with, he had a buddy that lived in the area and he was recruited by this drug organization. Hey, we need you to help us. They were going to we run in the morning. They were going to pull up in a car and shoot us dead. So we found out about this and we got the hell out of there. And the main drug lord knew that, hey, if you kill a, a federal U.S. agent, there's going to be hell to pay on your ass. Yeah. So he actually had the guy who was going to whack us killed.
0: Holy shit. Because
2: I remember there was an undercover DEA agent um, in a Mexican cartel, and they killed him. And I just remember the, the absolute wrath that oh, came yeah. down. Oh, yeah.
1: Kiki Cam Yeah, Yeah. yeah. To get Reverend yeah. Red yeah. They kidnapped him down there. They actually exactly. had a doctor down in Mexico keeping him alive where they were continuing torturing him. But- it was all hell to pay in that. That's when we actually shut the border down in Mexico, and we went there and snatched every one of those motherfuckers involved.
0: Yeah, fuck. That's hectic. That's it's, so. What, like, what was the difference between? Oh, I shouldn't say what the difference was, but Afghanistan and Honduras, like, it was just just as fucking hostile.
1: Hondo in a way. Was, Honduras was jungle. Yeah, but Honduras is very freaking dangerous. Yeah. Um, The only nice part of Honduras is Roatan, where everybody goes, it's an island, everybody goes to scuba dive and things of that nature, but it's a shithole, Yeah, let me tell you.
0: Yeah, and obviously the DEA has been operating out of Honduras for a very fucking long time.
1: Yeah, we have an office down there with a limited number of personnel. Yeah. I'm not... Really, I can't really say how many people, yeah. Of course,
0: yeah. No, like, yeah, if if you've got an office somewhere, that means it must be
2: busy. (laughs) You don't see any of these cartels, they're not doing it too smart. You should be setting up in the Caribbean or something like some nice place because you never deploy to uh, any nice places, it's all just (laughs) shitholes. Yeah,
1: I've been overseas, all kind of shitty places, never nice, you know. (laughs) Maybe since I'm retired, I'm going to go to maybe some nice places now.
2: <laughs> you need to come out here to Osjo and do some of your speaking. Oh, I here definitely
1: want to do that, mate. Yeah, um, mate, yeah. I heard it's very beautiful. Our our Delta team I was on, we came out there after I got hurt for some training. Yeah. And the yeah. guys liked it a lot.
0: Now, that's awesome.
1: So. But uh, I also heard you have every dangerous thing in the fucking world there, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, well, fuck. We got.
1: To, to include great white sharks, you know, yeah. kangaroos will whoop yeah. your ass. Yeah, but we don't have. Kind of st- shell or something, you step on the beach, can kill you. No, no,
2: that's true. We don't have mountain, mountain lions yeah. or grizzlies or anything like that, though. So yeah. We've
0: got some African gangs as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll kill you. Uh, so, Afghanistan. Uh that so, was-
1: Okay, we did that. We got the hell out of there, so yep. then... I'm um, getting ready for my next deployment in Afghanistan, which is going to be uh um, mid and how we, uh, ha- winter. Trip.
0: Yeah. Sorry. How was your mental state at that stage? Were you like, fuck yeah, back to Afghanistan? <laughs> like, fucking here we go again.
1: Yeah, here we go. You know, here we go. And you know, I'm ready to, <laughs> I'm chomping at the bit. You know, this is my job. This is my want to do. Yeah. And um, let's go, L- let's make this sh- shit happen. So as you guys know that Afghanistan, especially, in the winter, in the higher elevation, they get snow there. And it can get cold as hell. So in Afghanistan, they have what's called fighting season and the season where they grow their poppy and produce the heroin, which is um, springtime to early winter. So both tours, I'm in there. I'm in I'm in the middle of this shit. <laughs> so this particular tour, um, we're getting ready to go. And most of the U.S. special ops we're doing these village stability programs where they were going to live with the villagers in the community to try to get them to come over to our ways of thinking and value and beliefs and all that. But that's a whole nother podcast. We could talk five hours on that, whether or not the shit works or not. And so they weren't available for direct action missions, but guess who was you guys, the Afghan, uh, you know, Australian commandos. And, um, we had our Bravo team that was over there before we got there. And if we worked with special you know, ops teams before, uh, as you guys know, if you never worked with somebody before, there's a lot of dick measuring going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah Who are you? What can you do? You know, it usually take t- took a couple ops to, okay, these guys aren't bad. You know, we're not special ops per se, but we're the best DEA had to offer. And we can shoot, move and communicate pretty damn good. But we also bring that investigative piece. So when we arrive with you guys and tearing out there, we hit the ground running because we didn't have to go through all that bullshit. So I remember uh, my second op that year, we hit the biggest uh, heroin lab to date in Afghanistan at that time. The good thing was that they weren't used to us being in those areas, so there was not a lot of implanted IEDs, Mm. but still some hell of a gunfight. That op where um, we seized that big lab, we had um, a couple of your guys wounded, and we had one of our Afghan Power Force guys wounded. So it was a pretty crazy op, but it was very successful. So we're rocking and rolling through that tour, making some really good hits, drug seizures, and doing some damn good. So we're getting close to the end of the tour. We were going to leave like mid to end of December, and we are approaching our... Halloween, October 31st to, you know, 2011. Now, this bazaar, the Peck Bazaar in the Hellman Province pops up hot. And for the listeners who don't know what these bazaars are, they're kind of like outdoor flea markets with mud huts with rolling garage doors. And they sell everything from live chickens to sundry items, batteries, But to include chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin, IED bomb-making material, and small arms. And we had our Bravo team that was there, hit that with one of your commando units. And they got in a pretty big firefight there and seized some good items. In fact, the team leader of that FAST team, Brett, he was the oldest guy in our selection, and I was the second oldest. They were fighting their way back to the helicopter, helicopters. And he got what I call the Forrest Gump wound. <laughs> a uh, he jumped up wound. and stung him. And he got shot in the ass.
2: <laughs> That's a million-dollar wound right there.
1: Yeah, but he's a real hardcore guy. He was a Marine Corps officer, recon, um, jump qualified. He stayed yeah. the rest of the turf. But it's uh, it's on video, so, yeah. of course, yeah, he the made video. fun of his ass. Yeah. <laughs> and so that bizarre pops up hot again. So who's the oldest guy now? Me. Just, so, just quickly like on said, your
0: on your age. How old were you at that stage? Forty one. Forty one. So you're the yeah, you're the old guy of the of the group.
1: Yeah, and I was the oldest guy in our team, and
2: to get slumped with the machine so, gun and all the weight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it's funny when I work with these seals and green braves. Like, how old are you? I tell my age. Okay, grandpa. I was like, I'll show you, fucking grandpa. You know. <laughs> so. Like I said, we really like going at night to use our technology with night vision and lasers. But the problem was there wasn't a air unit that can fly us at night when we could hit it with, you know, you guys and our partner force. So we had to use a special mission unit, air wing unit, which um, trained Afghan pilots to fly when we left. So like, OK, we're not really happy about this. We can't go at night, but where our plan was to hit it right after first lights, um, October 31st, 2011. 9, 11 PM. So Free we get thrown another monkey wrench. When we're doing our briefing, they're like, okay, one of the helicopters is going to be all Afghan crew and piloted. We're like, timeout. Um, if that has to be that way, there's going to be no Australians on that bird or no Americans. Because if the pilot decides he wants to start his jihad that day and crash into a mountain, you do not want to be on that damn thing.
2: Yeah, exactly. And as Australians, we had to get uh, parliamentary approval just to get, when they even went to 50-50 Afghan pilots and um, yeah, American pilots. That was a special mission you know, unit, the
1: SMU or something, special missions wing? Yeah. It was called something different. It, the name changed a couple times. So the plan was that our Afghan partner force is going to infill and expill on that bird. And they were using, um, Russian MI 17 troop transport helicopters, pretty robust bird. And usually it was armed with a gal minigun on one side, and a PK machine gun on the other. And they're pretty fast birds and robust, but you get in there, you look, it's like everything's yellowing and it kind of rocks back and forth when it's flying. You're like, Oh God, how is this thing flying? But they're, they're pretty good. So the plan was, um, the command, you guys, you guys, the commandos were going to infill on two of those birds. Our Afghan partner force was going to infill on another and FAST team members with a couple of your commandos was going to be on the last bird. So the plan was you guys were going to provide an outer cordon around us to keep the insurgents from moving in on us. But the problem was this bazaar was like in a little valley and had mountains around it. So you guys know if you have the high ground in the tactical situation, you have the advantage. So in FAST team members, we were going to search the bazaar with our Afghan counterparts. I was going to be in charge of one um, team that was going to search one end of the bazaar with our Afghan counterparts and FAST team members. Then we had another one of our team members, Justin, which is in charge with the same makeup to search the other side. So we land, everything is going according to plan. We start pushing through and we start receiving some incoming gunfire. Not very accurate gunfire, but gunfire nevertheless. So I'm standing outside of one of the stalls in the bazaar that our Afghans mm-hmm. were sur- searching. There was an old beat up car behind me. I hear a gunshot fire off. No big deal. PM. I, I hear it hit the car behind me. Then I feel the back of my neck burn. I'm like, oh, shit. So I dive into the stall, the bazaar. The Afghans were searching. I put my hand on my back of the neck see if I had any blood. I didn't have any blood. I had one of the Afghans look at it. He's like, oh, sir, you okay, sir? <laughs> but I tell you, I felt the heat of that bullet to the back of my neck. Yeah, right. So believe me, I had my guard up after that. I use every tactic technique that I ever ever learned in the police department, DEA, the FAST team, and my other combat experiences. So we can't seize everything we find. We found quite a bit of poppy seed there. So what we did was take photographs, take representative samples, and destroy the rest in place. So we were in the process of doing that. And then the insurgents, they did the, this, they call it call to arms over this little loudspeaker PA system they had in the area. Of course, we couldn't understand what they were saying. We had one of our translators tell us, they said, uh, Today is your day to die. We must ride up, rise up and rid the infidels out of our land. So the gunfire drastically increased on us. We heard you guys really getting into it with them. We had the Marine airwing, the mall, the mall providing close air support. We hear them rocking and rolling. We're like, oh shit, you know, in combat, as you guys, know, it's pretty deafening loud. Even though we have hearing protection on and everything, it's just deafening loud. So we finish up with um, doing what we need to do. We call the birds to come pick us up. We only have to go about 400 meters at this point, not a far distance. We get bogged down in the gunfight now. And we're kind of leapfrogging and, you know, using cover and concealment, going from one mud hut to one mud hut. And, but we can't get to our exfil locations in time. So we had to wave the birds off. So at this point, you know, I get a sinking feeling in my stomach we know we can't stay the longer we stay the more time the enemy has to amass so i started to get a panic feeling but we know in combat you can't show fear and panic i'm like joe you better get your shit together right now you need to buck up we need to get the hell out of there so i got my shit together and um we made it to our expo location so we're all set up so the four birds come in. We're under pretty heavy gunfire point, to include belt-fed machine gunfire. So three birds land, one doesn't. Guess which one doesn't land?
2: The Afghani one.
1: <laughs> yes. They said they felt there was too much incoming gunfire. <laughs> and because of the brownout condition with the big helicopters kicking up in dust in a dusty situation, they don't land.
2: And people wonder why that country collapsed.
1: <laughs> yes it's it, I, I never thought it would collapse as quick as it did but it did it's it, yeah damn sure so we run out to our helicopter lo and behold who the hell's on there the afghans are on our bird oh, no. you know they didn't wait to get on theirs it's not like uber you just can't take anyone you got to take your bird <laughs> so we're hollering at them to get off they're not moving i don't blame them i wouldn't want to go back into that fucking hell So instead of being shot in this open field, we tell them to go. So the three helicopters take off. We have seven FAST team members left and two Australian commandos. So we take cover in a ditch. And lo and behold, a short time later, 100 yards or so or meters away, here here comes the helicopter that we were never going to get on, the Afghan crew and pilot it. It lands out there. And I remember saying to myself, This is going to be a shitty run, but we can't stay here. Now, I remember getting up and running. I remember firing a couple shots on the run. I did not have my machine gun this up, up, I had a carbine that has a suppressor on it. it towards the insurgents that were firing at us. Now, from this point on into about three weeks later, Everything that I'm going to tell you was secondhand information told to me. Mm. I guess I got to the helicopter in front of the pack. Lo and behold, the Afghan door gunners weren't even shooting, even though we're getting sh- shot at the hell and the helicopters getting shot up. So I start laying down covering fire, trying to engage targets. I don't remember any of this but I knew that would be something I would do. I defended to protect my two teammates, even if it meant giving up my own life. So I guess when all my teammates got on or near the helicopter, my team leader, Jared said, let's roll. He tapped me on the left shoulder and I turned left to run on the helicopter. That's when I was hit. We believe it was a round from a PKM belt for a machine gun. The round Entered the right side of my ballistic helmet, went through my right temple, went through the frontal lobe in my brain and out my left temple. Now, a lot of people ask me, oh, you got one of those wounds where the, the bullet hits your skull and like ricocheted around it. No, no, sir. It went straight through my fucking head. So I fall forward like a ton of bricks, flat, flat on my face. Now, my teammates think I just tripped and fell but they knew it was funny because I didn't put my hands out to brace my fall. So my team leader runs over to me. I'm face down in the ground and I'm not moving. He rolls me over. He sees the ballistic glasses I was wearing were shattered and I had a hole in my head. They think I'm dead. So they scoop me up, throw me on the bird and lift off. Now my teammates, they think I'm dead. And you know, you guys know the helicopters are really loud. She so really can't hear for breathing. So one of my teammates, um, Justin, um, said he's alive, he's breathing. And luckily we had a lot of battlefield medical training before we went over. And we unfortunately had to use it a lot more than we wanted over there. So they began to cut my stuff off and begin working on me. And, um, my head wounds, they put around my head wounds, this combat gauze, which is gauze with clotting agent. Now, when you have head or some kind of facial injuries, you want to try to get a better airway on the patient. So you can do it a couple ways. You can cripe them, make a cut in the bottom of their uh, neck and insert and implement so they can breathe better. Or you can put in their nas- their, their nose which is a nasal called a nasopharyngeal airway, which is a flexible tube, maybe about four inches long, looks like a funnel on one side. You shove it in your patient's nose and it goes down their sinus cavity and they can breathe better. Now let me tell you, in training we have to stick these in on each other, but we get to use lidocaine to deaden yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And it still sucks. Or, if we're training with the SEALs, they allow us to spit on it and shove it up the patient's nose. <laughs> Not the most hygienic, or in a battlefield condition, you can use the patient's blood. Yeah. So they begin to shove this thing up my nose. I come too. Holy now, shit. I don't remember any of this, but I guess I was talking and making sense. I wasn't complaining about my head. I said I had to get it out of get it out of my eyes, even though the round didn't hit my eyes. The pressure of the high velocity round going through my head ruptured both my eye globes and detached both retinas. I also said I had to move my leg, my left leg. And I kind of realized three weeks later in the hospital when I got my bearings, what had happened, I had been firing quite a bit and my suppressor was red hot. And when I got knocked unconscious, I laid on that suppressor and it burned the inside of my left knee real bad. And I tell you what, it was just a miracle nobody else got hit because I guess there was so much gunfire coming in on us. So, you know, they got me treated for shock and flew me back to the base we were staying at. Now, one of the things I talk about when I talk to groups, I know it may not be in vogue and everything, but I have a strong belief in God. Now, the injury I had. Very, very few people survive from it. Yeah. Now, I believe 100 percent I didn't see any bright lights. I may have saw a little fire down below, but I don't think it was my time um, that God spared me for a reason. And I think one of those reasons is to go out and talk to folks about overcoming adversity, you know, because when people think they're having a bad day, bad month, bad year, it always could be worse, and to motivate people to do that. Also, I had a St. Michael's medallion on in my kit. That's the patron saint for law enforcement officers, for the Lord to protect you. Also, I would say, and I had a copy of the Psalm 91 prayer in my kit. That's the prayer um, you pray to Lord for soldiers going to battle for them to protect you. Also, another thing, as I was in really great shape when I got shot and talking to the doctors and things afterwards, the better shape that you're in, the more of a traumatic injury you can usually survive and your recovery goes a lot better so I really encourage any folks that are in the military or law enforcement, just please, please stay in the best shape that you yeah, can. But you never know what's going to happen. It could be at work. You could get hurt. You could be at home and fall off a ladder. You could be in car accident. So you don't have to be an Olympic athlete, but stay in the best shape you can because you'll be grateful later. And so to hell would your family be grateful, too
0: yeah exactly. so just back to the injury now your the rounds pass through your frontal lobe uh you're shipped off uh, obviously to Germany and then from there back to the u s How long's the recovery and you know you know when do you come to and you know given the news and of obviously told what's happened
1: okay um so you yeah, I spent. uh, Three nights in Longstone, Germany, but the pressure in my head was rising. And then I was flown back to state with one of my best mates on my team, Travis. Um, So we land in Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland in the United States. And I was taken over to Walter Reed National Naval, Naval Medical Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. So at that time, my family was there to meet me. Now, my dad being in law enforcement, he knew kind of what to expect. He briefed my mom up. My fiance at the time, she was an intensive care nurse back in in, there in the States. And she saw a lot of bad things. So they let my family see me before they did additional surgeries over there. I was a mess. I had the full full frontal cranial piece. The skull cap was cut away. So my head was all sunken in. My eyes were swollen shut. I had tubes and things going in every part of my damn body. So when my um, fiance saw me, I guess she put her hand over her mouth, screamed, ran out the room and passed out. Oh, shit. And her dad had to help her off the floor. She later said that, hey, you know, it's bad when it happens to other people. But if it's somebody you love and care about, it's a whole different ball game
0: yeah fuck i just couldn't imagine it and, and so you're in you're in walter reed as well
1: yes walter reed naval medical hospital yep. um so they brought me in for um additional surgeries and they put me in an induced coma they had me on this purple ball drug which is um really good for putting somebody in induced coma because they can bring you back um pretty quick so they had me on a feeding tube the whole nine uh a ventilator and everything, so they get ready to bring me off after a week later. Now, even though I was talking and making sense in the helicopter with additional traumas of the surgery and things, they didn't know how I was going to be when they brought me out of the induced coma. So they bring me out of the induced coma. I was a little confused at first. They asked me, where do you live? Oh, Detroit, Michigan. What do you do? I'm a Detroit police officer. What's your dog's name? I said, Max which is my very first dog as a kid. But I soon after that, I got my bearings back. So they talked to my family and what a frontal lobe injury, that's kind of your brain's filter. It kind of controls your decision making, controls your emotions. So they tell my parents and my ex-fiancee, Joe could never be trusted with a credit card again. He just might spend a bunch of money. <laughs> he may be at work and take all his clothes off. Of course, yeah, because I was hot, right? Why, why, else, why else would you not take your clothes off?
2: I do that normally. So, and I don't need a frontal brain injury just to, to do that.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. So my mom being my mom, he's like, well, he's not going to lose much. He didn't make good decisions to begin with. a little bit of confidence, mom. You know, right on.
2: You, know? you can always trust a mom to tell the truth.
1: Yeah, thanks for the support. So um, now the crazy thing was that I thought I got hurt on another mission. I thought we made it through that mission, but I didn't remember planning another mission. So my teammates told me I got hurt on that mission. And then it was weird, too, that I kept having this dream that I was in Germany with my partner, Travis, and they had us on this old World War II German bomber. And they're like, Joe, you're going to work this machine gun and Travis is going to fly. I'm like, he doesn't know how to fly a fucking plane. Uh-huh. And I don't know how to work all these knobs to work this damn machine gun. But even though I was unconscious in Germany, subconsciously, I must have knew I was there. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, right.
0: Oh, shit. Wow.
1: That's so uh, we start uh, the rehab in the hospital. And um, I was when I got shot, I was in the two thirties, very lean. I guess I got down to like 160 something pounds Jeez. and my ex wouldn't tell me, let them tell me what I weighed because she knew I would have threw a hissy fit Yeah, and a kind of funny story. Um, so we would do different things with the PT staff there. Like today, that day they were, Hey Joe, today we're going to put your shorts, t-shirt on and socks. How long is it going to take you? Five, you know, five minutes, whatever, you know, so, I'm sitting there with my ex and the PT lady, and I grab a hold of these shorts, and they didn't feel like my size. I'm like, what size are these? So, my ex is sitting there like a church mile. She won't say anything. So, the PT lady says, Let me see, I'll tell you. She says, They're a medium. I took those damn medium shorts, threw them across the room. I said, I'm a big fella, I wear extra large. But the problem with it, If I would have put those extra lars out, they would have have fell straight to the floor and all my business would have been showing. (laughs) So I I was kind of a pain in the ass patient. So I was there uh, two months. Two months. Now, yes, in in that hospital. Yeah, Yeah. And then I went to another hospital after in Richmond, Virginia. And part of the piece there was that I listened to my family and teammates Talk about all these young service members coming back from Afghanistan, really tore up, you know, burned up, missing multiple limbs and such. And a lot of these were young kids. A lot of them may have never had a child, maybe newlyweds, maybe not married. And they didn't really live much of their life. When this happened to me, like I said, I was 41. My daughter is getting ready to graduate high school. I lived a pretty damn good life. Let me let me say. Yeah. So when I I would have these pity parties for myself in the hospital, why me? Woe was me? I'm like, Joe, you know what? It could always be worse. Somebody always has it worse than you. Now in life, life's going to throw us a lot of shitty things. It seems like a lot of times we climb one mountain, we get knocked down, and then we have to climb another one. You know, you just give up and just say, no, I can't do it. No bullshit. I made a commitment that I was going to try to do as much blind as when I can see. Now, I'd be lying to you if I said it was tough. It's hard. It's it's hard as hell. And I'll talk a little later about what some of the things I'm doing now. So I made I made that commitment and Mm. I got to talk to a lot of special ops people. They got hurt and I wanted to know, how do you go from? operating way up high to down low. And they told me I had a one Green Bray who lost his sight, taught me how to run blind. There was another guy who taught at West Point. So, you know, I, I just wanted to know, how do you you keep functioning? You know, and one of the things I tell folks, you know, if you're in law enforcement or military, you have to have this attitude also that you're in a fight with a suspect or a fight for your life, you got to have that attitude that I will not give up, I will not fucking quit. I will win this fight. I will survive. If I have to scratch, claw, gouge, whatever the hell you got to do, you got to do it. You got to have that in your mind. I call it that winning mentality, mentality the warrior's mindset. You don't you don't lose. You got to win. You got to have you got to have that attitude. So, I spent 2 months there. And then I went down to the McGuire VA down in Richmond, Virginia.
0: Yeah. And just quickly, I, like the, the extent of your injuries was complete blindness.
1: Yes. Yeah. Now I started getting a little sight back and I was a miracle. I did it in my left eye only, but what had happened is my retina and my left eye detached again. So I lost that sight. They fixed it. It detached again. And they fixed it. I got a little bit of sight back, but not as much as I had for a moment there. Yeah. So I went down to Richmond, stayed a month there, learning more blind training and different skills and things. And during this time, okay, you figure I was shot Halloween day, 2011. Now we're getting into June ish of 2012. Now, my neurosurgeon over in Afghanistan, who really fought to have the opportunity to treat me, and his commanding officer didn't agree, because they thought I was unsavable, but thank God that he worked on me. Um, He's one of the reasons I'm alive, along with my teammates treating me, um, was stationed back at Walter Reed. So I was his very first patient he saw when he came back. So he recalls I'm walking down the hall with my ex holding it on her arm. I can't see anything, but in his words, I was massive. Again, I started lifting weights and I sat and we talked to him and he started crying for he, he of all people knew how bad it could have been. I'm talking, making sense the whole nine. And I still didn't have the plate in my head because they wanted to wait a while for the chance of rejection being greater. So we're in um, July of 2012. So he's going to put the plate in my head. So he does that. And then they kind of have, oh, God, an intervention on me. Yeah. me. Joe, before we let you out of here, you got to volunteer to go to an inpatient blind school. Now, inpatient means you have to go live somewhere. And it's not at your home. And who wants to go to blind school? Nobody. And I did a lot of crazy, scary things in my life. But blind school? No way. You know, being away from my family, friends, everything, having to fend for myself. So I agree. We call around to a couple different places. I decide on the Heinz VA hospital outside of Chicago, Illinois. They were known to be really good with technology and they had a lot of younger service members from Afghanistan and Iraq and they could get me in right away so I volunteer I go now a lot of people ask me okay okay fine Joe what is it like being blind it sucks now the biggest thing is you lose your independence yeah I just can't go in a car and drive and go do something I have to have people help me and also I was kind of this type A person, you know, as a lot of us are in military and law enforcement. Hey, if you want it done right, you do it yourself. I didn't like to ask for help before, but now I have to ask for help because I need help. So I got over that shit. And also being in crowds at first, being in law enforcement for as long as I was, you're always taught to be aware of your surroundings, you know, exactly. Look shady. Who doesn't? Where can you take cover and air concealment and where are your exits and entrances? So things at first seem closer or farther than they appeared by my hearing. So I was scared to death, but I eventually got used to that. So go to blind school. They teach you how to use all the talking software with the iPhone and iPad and talking computer so I can do everything. I can make phone calls, text messaging, search the web, do emails, the whole nine. They teach you how to take care of yourself, basic hygiene, how to use your blind cane to navigate things. And they put special apps on your phone. One's a color reader where I will tell me the color of something. One's they can tell the denomination of money I have. Another app, it's a free app called Be My Eyes. It's like a video chat yeah, um, on your phone, and it's free. So if I get stuck somewhere where I can't find my way out of somewhere <coughs> or I have a couple of pill bottles and it's the same size, they can tell me what it is. So there's always somebody yeah, right. on that other end.
0: Yeah, right. That's, well, uh, that's so interesting. That's, yeah, I
2: didn't know that. That's no. a handy piece of technology. Yeah, it's,
1: pretty, it's definitely a lot easier being blind these days than it used to be. And I think it's easier actually me having sight before, so I can pick something up and I can tell you, okay, this is this or this is that. And also in blind school, they kind of tell you of the misperceptions of somebody being blind. A lot of people never really run into, ran into a blind person. They think of the blind person with the dark glasses and the cane. And because people think you're blind, they think you, can, you also can't hear that well. So they talk to you really loud. I'm like, you know, I can't see the shit. But I can sure hear, so you can <laughs> turn that down, and, you know, a couple of decibels, yeah, yeah. you know. Mm. So it was blind school. It really taught me how to be more independent. Yeah, of course. And well, you're,
0: you're still now, in the DEA. You're still in the right. DEA at this stage as well. So obviously they're still looking after you and providing yes, all this. Is, yep.
1: Okay, it it was it was a miracle. Okay, yeah. our administrator at the time, Miss Lenhart, talked to my partner and. She's like, what does Joe want? Uh, He said, Joe wants to be part of DEA as long as he can be. He doesn't know what he can do, but he wants to be part. And they figured out what I would make um, with a medical disability as opposed to retiring as a regular agent with full benefits. And you do a lot better retiring as a regular agent with full benefits, even though I didn't meet the medical requirements, they kept me on. And thank God, my agency, DEA, was really there for me, 100%.
2: That's good to hear. That's awesome. What's um, What a lot of people don't know is after Joe got shot, the administration put a kibosh on going into that area, going into Paik. And uh, Davey's name was, was the TL of the FAST team that rolled out with us. When they, when they took over, he's like, we're going into this place and we're getting revenge. And we did roll out and they had to – Cooked the books a little bit. So we renamed the renamed the place and uh, actually rolled in there and yeah, we got a bit of revenge for, for Joe.
1: <laughs> yeah. I heard you guys leveled the place. <laughs> yeah. yeah Troy, I yeah. appreciate that. Troy yeah. definitely Believe me, will. if I could have went back over there, I would have went, you know, but <laughs> I'm glad you guys did it for me. So we'll kind of get into now what I'm doing now. Yeah, of course. What yeah. activities I did. Um, I ran a, um, some 5k races blind
0: no
2: oh, shit do you have like a pacer I- or something for that like someone who runs beside you or are you just running it yeah, on your basically
1: own? that green break t- basically you take a um a shoestring shoelace yep. you tie it in a big circle and i hold on to one end and they hold on to the other and they kind of run my pace and um, they'll tell me if there's a big hole in front of me stop or whatnot and they kind of move me over to the left or right and I- you run their pace it works out well, except I was doing a 5K turkey trot in Philadelphia with my ex and her brother, and a lady lost her hat in front of me and immediately stopped. So we had like a 10-person pileup.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> so, so, yeah, I also hunt and shoot blind.
0: Oh, shit. And
1: you're probably thinking, Joe, if you got a gun in your hand, I don't want to be 10 miles from you. <laughs> but I tell you, technology is amazing. Yeah. I have on a rifle. It's like an AR-10 style 7.62 rifle. It's like a high-speed video camera that's built in Wi-Fi. And you put an app on a smartphone or a smart tablet, and it projects a scope picture. So I have a partner tell me left, right, up, and down. As long as my breathing and trigger press is proper, I can hit a pie plate target at 300 meters every time. So since I've been hunting, I've shot six deer. You're right. I actually got two deer with one shot and it's all on video. Fuck. I was with my father, go hunting with these wounded warrior groups, a guide and a guy videoing. And now shooting blind. And I've learned just because you shoot a deer, it doesn't mean it's not going to get up and run. So you got to be prepared for a follow-up shot. So you have either... Damn, you missed or you got it. So I fire him. Boom. And they're like, okay. I said, do I need to shoot again? They go, no, he's down hard. He's a big nine-point buck. But, oh, shit, we hit something behind him. We had a doe standing behind him that we didn't see till after the fact. So I shot the buck and shot the doe with one bullet. So the blind guy got two for one. And so I was happy I got extra meat. <laughs>
2: He shoots better than your old battalion yeah, does, mate. He certainly does, mate. <laughs> Far out.
1: So also, um, when I can see there's a show here in the state called Swamp People. Yes. People are, you know, and we love it. Go, they go alligator hunting. Yeah. And I'm like, those people are nuts. You'd never catch me in a million years doing that shit. So the opportunity came. Joe, would you like to go gator hunting? Sure. I guess this is part of my bad decision-making. <laughs> so we go um, another guy in my fast team with um, a guide whose brother was a DEA agent down outside of New Orleans. And um, how you, if you saw that show people, you have to bait these big trouble hooks with, chi- with chicken and the gators will take the chicken and the hook will get set them you in the gator and you got to pull them up and shoot them in the head. So they go set these baits up the night before. So we go to the first couple. They're up. No gator on there. We go to the third one. He goes, oh, hell yes. We got a big one. We had over a 10-foot gator. He was laying on the bank with the chicken in his mouth and the hook set. So we roll up with this little John boat. And the weapon we used at the time was a Glock 40-caliber pistol with a laser sight. So we roll up and that shows swamp people. They kind of jerk on the line for dramatics for TV. That's not what you really want to do. Gators have to breathe oxygen. So they eventually have to come up. Yeah. So we roll up gators in the water at this time. And I'm on this John boat on my knees getting set up for a shot. He's going to pull the gator up and I'm going to press the pad to activate the laser. He's going to guide me in for a shot. So this is when reality sets in. I'm like, Joe, what the fuck are you doing out here? You know that you can't see and this gator snaps at you and tears your arm off. These local yokels are going to be like that blind guy, it served him right. He got no business hunting alligator out there anyway. It serves him (laughs) right for getting his arm eaten off. So he's pulling this big son of a bitch up. So all of a sudden he says, shit, the line went slack. He pulls it up The gator bent the fucking hook straight. Fuck. So he's like, don't worry. It's got to come up and breathe oxygen. We got to look for bubbles. So we're waiting a short time later. He goes, okay, I think I see bubbles up. I think he's coming up. So I give him the pistol at this point. Um, Gator comes up. He fires a shot. Boom. Hits him. Fires again. Boom. My partner's with me. said, you want me to shoot him? And he goes, yeah. So he shoots him. He's got three rounds in his gator's head at this point. So we push the gator over to the bank to pull him on the boat, and we're pulling him on the boat. I hear another shot fire. Boom! The son of a bitch opened his eye again. He still wasn't dead. So we threw him on the boat, and we got this big gator and the three of us. So we got to take him back to shore before we continue our hunt. We put him up, go to our next line. We have another gator on. He's a smaller gator between eight and nine foot, but still tear you up. So they pull him in. I shoot the gator I go, you want me to shoot him again? They go, yeah. I shoot him again. We pull him up, get him out of there. So it was pretty crazy, but would I do it again? Um, probably so, you know, it's <laughs> part of my bad decision making. <laughs> so also, I got a chance two years ago to go black bear hunting in West Um West Virginia, Brandywine, West Virginia. Yeah. With this other wounded warrior group. So I actually shot a black bear, too.
0: Oh, shit. Did you eat it?
1: So, uh, did I eat it? Yeah. Yeah, I got the meat, and I made a bunch of jerky, and I still have some more meat in my freezer. Oh, hell yeah. And got the head around no,
0: I want to try it. try it. So this, try it.
1: this is going to be bad decision-making again. Now, this spring, I have an opportunity to go grizzly bear hunting in Alaska. Oh,
0: shit.
1: Now, they said you're probably going to need something a little bigger than a 308. Yeah, so my buddy's got a 300 Win Mag, so I think I'm gonna give the um the grizzly bear hunting a shot. So we'll we'll see how that works out. To be continued with that.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely follow you up with that one.
1: Also, I had a chance since I've been blind to go tandem skydive jumping. Now, I was talking to a group; they was training one of our local tactical teams, and I told them all the things I did. And I said, "Do you ever?" He's like, "Do you ever try to go skydiving, Tan?" Skydive. I said, yeah, when I was in Arizona, I tried, but I was a little over the weight limit. He goes, um, I think we can work something out. So his wife up in Monterey, California, Northern California owns a skydiving place. Yeah. So we go up there with another one of my fast team partners and, um, he goes, okay. When they say to put down your weight, say you weigh a little lighter. I go, okay. He goes, you'll be fine. Don't worry. I'm like, Famous last words. You'll be fine. Don't worry. I said, okay, I trust you. So my guide I was jumping with, he takes a look at me. He goes, we're going to fall real fast. So they're like, Joe, how high do you want to jump? I said, of course, as high as we can. Right. So we jumped at 18,000 feet. That's as high as I guess you can jump with prior FA approval or without oxygen. So I don't know if it's worse being blind or seeing jumping out of the helicopter. I mean, jumping out of the plane, we jumped out of a King Air. Um, so we jumped out, got to free fall for a while. Um, thank God we had a good canopy and I got to steer and we landed real soft. So that's all in video too. I'd probably do that again. Also, also in blind school, they had some activities we did. And one of them was to go play golf. Now I played golf when I was younger and I probably play golf better blind than when I can see, but you don't got to worry about taking your eye off the ball, but you can't see the damn thing. <laughs> so then you kind of swing and they kind of line you up. And more often than not, I hit the damn ball. So I played golf twice.
0: Yeah.
1: My putting game's not the best anymore. So I may need help with that. And, um, what, what else have I done? Um, that's the blind Um Also, um, before I lost my sight, we talked about I did bodybuilding. Yeah. So this is around 2015-ish. My ex at the time was competing in um, physique sports. And we were going back to Michigan. I was still living in Virginia to meet up with her coach. And we went to train at this powerhouse gym there and we were training and the coach goes, Joe, you need to compete again. I go, I just don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I don't. I didn't have the confidence. He goes, Joe, let's put you on a mini cutting diet. I'll do it for free and see how you look. So we did that. He goes, oh, no, Joe, you need to compete. So he talked me into competing again. I did a show down in Virginia, Norfolk, the Virginia Grand Prix which is uh, in the NPC organization, the National Physique Committee. That's the feeder system for the IFBB. It's kind of, you know, the division one of bodybuilding. So I did the old people's class, which was um, over 40. And I did the open, which is young people, all ages. So I weighed in uh, like for that show, probably 212 pounds. I was a heavyweight. I won the old people's class and I won the open with all the young people. And I remember being backstage with all my trophies and just crying. I'm like, I can't believe I'm still doing this. Yeah. Far <clears throat> so it was just incredible. And people asked me, you know, do you compete against other people that are visually impaired or, you know, impaired? no, nope, I'm the only one. They just put me on stage. And as long as I'm facing the right way, I'm good. So I went on to the national level and started doing well in the national level. And then in 2021, I did the Masters Nationals in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I did the age group of 50 to 59 in the super heavyweight class, which is over 225 pounds. And I won, and I became the first blind IFBB men's pro bodybuilder in history. That is insane. Well, wow. so it was pretty incredible. Believe me, I went backstage with my life size pro card, and bodybuilders are all these guys with egos, and everybody stood up and clapped for me. Yeah. And I broke down and cried. My buddy broke down and cried. So it was, uh, it was, it was, it's still surreal to this day. In this last year, I did the Chicago Pro, did a first pro show in the Masters. And I competed in two age classes, 40 to 49 and 50 to 59. And I got second place in both classes, which is kind of unheard of in your first pro show. Yeah. So I was ecstatic on that. And um, so I did that. And I'm getting ready to compete again this year. Um, I'm going to do the Chicago Pro Masters again, which I'm going to try to get first place, which I think I can do. And this year, they are bringing back the Masters Mr. Olympia. And the Mr. Olympia is like the Super Bowl of bodybuilding. Yeah, of course. Uh, Now, it's going to be in Romania in August. And who does not want to go to Romania? (laughs) So, I am going to, I think I can be able to qualify for that. And hopefully, I'll be standing on the Olympia stage. Now, as a kid, I I looked at those bodybuilding magazines. and like, man, I would love to be that and look like that one day. And lo and behold, blind, I'm there now. So it's pretty crazy to tell you the least.
0: I know. That's awesome. That's just absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah. You know, so I'm really geeked about it. So I got a book coming out in in about two
0: months. Oh, yeah, yeah, right.
1: So I'm writing with a ghostwriter. So that's going to be good on my story. And one of the things I kind of want to hit on, I think it's very important, Um, was this podcast is, you know, for a lot of law enforcement in military. Now, PTSD is a real fucking thing. Mm. I have pretty bad PTSD. I knew I had it. Now, my mental game was off. I didn't get better until I said it out loud and asked for help. Now, a lot of people think it's not macho or bravo to, um, you know, not macho or, or you know, or cool to say you have it. It's actually cool and macho to say you have it, to admit it. You know, we're big, tough guys. We don't want to admit that we have it, but you need to admit you have it and ask for help. We lose way too many people a day. I think over in the States here, we're still losing losing 22 service members from suicide. Yeah, One's too many. So please. I know probably a lot of you folks listen to this podcast, have it, please get help. There's a lot of different help available out there. There's a lot of different modalities and things. Please do it. I got the help. I was in a real bad, dark place for some time. I'll admit it. I had a gun to my head a couple times. I ruined my marriage, ruined relationships and everything else. And I got to the point where I just didn't want to live like that anymore. So please, please get some help. Your family members can talk to people too. It's a really dark, bad thing, and it's no way to live.
0: No, you're exactly right, mate. It's uh, yeah, definitely for our listeners because majority of our listeners are police, uh, you know, ambos, fires, first responders, and obviously military. So definitely take that on board. Now, mate, we're reaching uh, – we're coming up to about two hours uh, chatting now, and uh, it's been absolutely just – Insightful. Just to hear your story and your grit of uh, determination just to keep on keeping on, which kind of leads on to our final questions that we ask our guests. And uh, mate, this first question you've pretty much throughout the the podcast you've you've already answered it, but let's just reaffirm this uh, this question for us. So you know, what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on? You know, complete any goal they set their mind to, and just. You know, live life to the, to, the, to the fullest like you are right now, mate. Even though with your injury, you, you're continually just doing things, jumping out of planes, chasing bloody alligators. Bears. Then you're going to be chasing <laughs> grizzly bears this year. And you're killing it on the, on the bodybuilding stage because we'll definitely put up some pictures because you're an absolute beast when it comes to bodybuilding.
1: Well, one of the biggest, I would say never give up, never quit you know, just keep fighting, keep scratching, clawing. Just don't, don't, don't quit. Don't give up. And one of the things that kept me going at my darkest times mentally, I would just be like, Joe, just make it through tonight. Tomorrow's a new day. Make it through tonight. Get up tomorrow and start fresh and give it your all. It's, it's like I said, it's tough, but you got to keep fighting. You got to have that no quit. Don't give up attitude. You put hard work in things. You put effort. You know, things may not work out your way all the time, but learn from your mistakes. And for the most, if you put effort, you keep trying, things should work out for you in the long run.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh,
2: that's great advice. It's the best. Yeah, best advice I can uh, honestly pass on to people as well. It's uh, what Joe just said. Then yeah, just,
0: never quit. Yeah. Fucking just
2: get it. And just like you said it. earlier on, there's. You might be in a dark spot, but it could always be worse, and someone's always going to be, you know, worse than you as well. So
0: exactly right. And you're yeah. alive. That's you know, you could be dead. That's, yeah,
1: that's, I praise praise God every day.
0: Yeah, uh, mate. Second question. You, again, you've already pretty much touched on this. Uh, what is the plan for the future? Obviously, bodybuilding. You're, you're planning to compete again in Romania on the on the bigger stage. Uh, you plan to chase some grizzly bears. What else? Are you, what, what what else is out there?
1: really continuing the motivational speaking um, because that's my way of giving back and helping people yeah also the um i have a little bit of vision in my left eye and which limiting more vision is my optic nerve and retina still very damaged but they are working on stem cell technology for that so in two to five years um, they feel i can get a lot more sight back so if that happens i would like to coach some people in bodybuilding and it also coach and teach tactics and tactical training and shooting.
0: Yeah, nice mate. Nice. Um, a third question now. Uh, tell us something uh, that people don't know about you, uh, as in like a, a guilty pleasure. Now I know you're a bodybuilder, so you'd have some type of weird food fetish. You know, once you finish your bodybuilding, you'd eat like five pizzas in a row? Or, or, you know, what have you got that people don't know about you?
1: Well, I still do this. Um, I love pizza. Yeah. It's funny you said that. <laughs> and, you know, I get a couple cheap meals a week and then, you know, it's one might be pizza and I really like chocolate chip cookies. I like yeah. ice cream. <laughs> I try not to eat it as often and people ask me, oh, you get sick of eating that, you know, bland chicken and, you know, broccoli and rice. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, do you like other food? Yeah, I love it. But the problem is, if I eat all that shit all the time, as we get older our metabolism slow down and I'll be a fat ass. So I do have some guilty pleasures in food, so
0: Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, my brother's a bodybuilder and he has these uh, weird cravings for food sometimes and it'll be the weirdest foods as well, but yeah, that's definitely a guilty pleasure. Now, mates uh, actually the fourth question. This is Ooh, I'm just gonna, gonna throw, throw in a fourth question.
2: One. You're really mixing it up now. Today, you,
0: you? you spent a bit of time with the Aussies. Us Aussies. <laughs> And I'm sure you would have learned some words uh, or slang during your time. Give us something that maybe you've learned.
1: Okay, um, I learned what a thought was.
0: <laughs> tell us. Tell us, I don't even. I don't know. What is it?
1: We were talking one day after mission about gingers, redheaded people. Oh, I thought, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, one of your Aussie mates was like, Oh, yeah, made a fat. I'm like, What the fuck's a fat? He said it stands for a fucking orange thing.
0: Uh-huh. Fot, f- f- sorry, not FOT. Yeah, Yeah, f- <laughs> f- I was thinking of something different. <laughs> f- uh, yeah, yeah, right. Is, it, is that the only one? or is Because we've we've got some weird know, slang. Um, How did you like I the fresh milk in the Tim Tams?
1: Uh, I what I. I learned what Abu was, Aborigine. It's like native people there to Australia. Yep, yep. Yes, and I learned, you know, I think when you smoke a cigarette, it's called smoking a fag. Yeah. <laughs> that could be taken so many yeah, different ways. Yep, yep.
0: Yeah, Time, time's you know, and
1: everything. You know, also mate, you know, means like, fr- you know, friend mm. and stuff like that. Yeah,
2: yeah. How did you like the the uh, SF compound that we were in up in Tarrant with the fresh milk and the Tim Tams? I, and-
1: I loved it. You guys had awesome food. You know, you could get supplemental rations like well, the protein bars and like yeah. new things, and your your gym was amazing too. Yep. You know, and it was just I tell you, working with you folks, you guys are a class act. Very, very one of the best special ops units I ever worked with, and I'm not blowing smoke up you guys' ass. And I worked with a lot of different units. You guys were really good.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome to hear, mate. That's awesome to hear. Now again, mate, uh, thanks for uh, you know giving us your time. Uh, we know you're a busy man, obviously bodybuilding, and we know that bodybuilding takes up a lot of your time. Uh, setting alarms when you can eat and calorie counting and mo- m- macronutrients and Gee,
2: all that. Type yeah, you'd of stuff. be on like five, six thousand calories a day, wouldn't you? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and off-season right now. And thank God for talking food scales. I can weigh my food. Everything is weighed by the gram.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is absolutely crazy. But, mate, again, like really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time and sharing your story. And hopefully, you know, your your inspirational words reaches out and touches someone.
1: Yes, definitely. And it was a, a pleasure and honor to talk with you folks today. It was just when um, my buddy Kevin said, hey, would you be interested I jumped at the opportunity and I just thank you guys for having me on your show.
0: No, I appreciate it, mate. And hopefully, mate, if you come to Australia, definitely uh keep in contact and you got Troy's number and you got uh, my email. So let's uh we'll definitely try an R V. But we get over to the US a fair bit, so yeah. we'd love to catch up and uh you know, we'll eat pizza in front of you while you're training. Well hopefully I'm definitely. catching up. Definitely and you
1: guys have my contact too, so please call me if you do. Yeah.
0: Of course, mate. Of well course. hopefully we catch up at the reunion as well.
1: Yes, I'll be there.
0: All right, mate. Uh Actually, if people want to reach out to you, how can they get in contact? Uh, you, you've got a website?
1: Yes, I have a speaking website. It's basically um, my first name, J-O-E, with my um, my first initial and my last name, U S. So J-O-E-P.us, and it's my website, and you can ask questions or inquire about different things that I'm doing, and please feel free to reach out to me.
0: No, awesome, mate. And uh, yeah, definitely uh, reach out if you want uh, to get in contact with Joe. Mate, again, thank you. And uh, let's stay in contact.
1: Thank you. You guys as well.
0: Thanks, mate. Thanks, Jeez. mate. Take care. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee, how a like my men, long and black. <laughs> However... Lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it get your discounts. So again,
1: jump onto 30 and grab yourself a supply.